Welcome back to the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. This episode is a story about wide angle imaging for fire mapping and maritime search. But it's also a story about changing the culture and getting people to trust a new way of doing things. And to help me tell that story, I've invited Alison Harrod, Mission Success Manager at a startup called Overwatch Imaging, to the podcast today. Now, whenever I work with a company like Overwatch Imaging, it's hard to know which story to tell. We could just as easily have made an episode about AI and object detection or about smart sensors because, you know, they do those things too. The decision about which story to tell depends a lot on the guest and their background. So after meeting Alison, we decided to make this episode for you and try to give you a broad overview of what wide-angle imaging is and, and how it's used in the context of fire mapping and maritime search. So it's one thing to have a technology like wide-angle imaging, but it's an entirely different thing to get people to use it. And as you'll hear, fire mapping is not a move fast and break things kind of situation. But I'll let Alison explain more about that in just a second. So it's worth noting that I ask all companies, organizations that are featured on this podcast to help cover the costs of producing and promoting their episode. Some of them say yes and some of them say no. Overwatch Imaging said yes. And when a company says yes to supporting their own episode, what they're actually doing is supporting all of the episodes that I've ever created. So I really, really appreciate it, Overwatch Imaging. Thank you so much for your support. Hi, Alison. Welcome to the podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you here. You are the Mission Success Manager at a startup called Overwatch Imaging. And I want to talk a little bit about fire mapping, wide-angle monitoring. I think that's what, how you refer to it, and, and a bunch of other things. But why don't we start with an introduction? Could you just tell people who you are and how you got to be the, the mission success manager at the startup and what that means? Yeah, so I come from an engineering background and found my way to Overwatch Imaging in 2020 in the pandemic, or 2021 rather, when I was looking for a role that allowed me to sort of see my impact on the world and, and help problems that matter. Overwatch Imaging is a startup focused around supporting folks in high intensity, high high-risk environments, so fire response, emergency response, tactical response, that sort of thing. And our goal is to make those jobs easier and better. And so I joined Overwatch as a program manager, so I was customer-focused. I was trying to make sure that the products we delivered met expectations, they understood how to use them, and that we are growing right along with our customers and their needs as that job changed and, and fluctuated. And then I stepped into this mission success manager role in the last year and a half, um, and we are focused on sort of all aspects of what it takes to execute the job each and every day. And so that's both on an internal side and also supporting our customers and helping them execute their jobs every day. Well, I can, I can really hear that, that customer focus coming through when you describe what, what you do. Fire mapping, emergency response, tactical intelligence. Uh, I think you said those three things. What, what do they mean to you? So uh, maybe I should step back a second. We build camera systems where we integrate sort of the best products on the market, and then we build our software on top of them to make the jobs that they're doing easier. And the reason that I'm so ambiguous about that sentence is that the job of fire mapping is very different from the job of maritime search, which is very different from the job of tactical intelligence. So for fire mapping, what we're doing is we're creating wide area mosaics of images and vector products that outline where fire is to help 
support response crews who are trying to put it out or protect communities or, you know, in a preventative fire burn, they're they're trying to make sure what's burning is meant to be burning and, and what's not isn't. And so it's really just that broad situational awareness. In maritime search, our cameras are and our software are working together to identify and pick out objects of interest based on, you know, the operator chosen criteria automatically. And tactical intelligence is is typically a, a mix of both that situational awareness and that automated detection sort of shoved together and packaged into one focused on the job that that customer is doing. So you said that they're all very, very different. Could the overlap between them be that they're all using this sort of wide area mapping technology that, that you've developed? And is the difference just you know, how it's applied, like the the objects that you're seeking to to extract and and maybe the, the processing chain in that, and maybe also the results that are being sent off to the, the people downstream? Yeah, absolutely. I think the best way I can describe Overwatch Imaging is a software company that looked to the market and couldn't find the hardware we needed to execute the job or the jobs the way we needed to. So we build bespoke systems that provide that wide area view. And I, and I use that word a lot because it's a critical part of the problem is really understanding the context that we're operating in across those three environments. The, the reason that I say they're all very different is that the software working on top of those images coming in is bespoke to that or tailored to that mission. But yes, absolutely. The wide area view that we operate under is really what sets us apart from what exists on the market today. So, so what does that mean? I'm... <laughs> I'm hoping that you can go into that in some more detail for me because wide area view, I think about satellites, there's got to be other planes that are that are operating over these environments, helping people map the fires, for example. This doesn't sound like a new idea. How is wide area view different from you know, from, from what you, you had seen in the market? Yeah, so what we see, to, if we take fire mapping as sort of our focus point to jump from, what we see is that the civil aviation and civil side of this type of work, this emergency response, borrows a lot of technology and, and existing workflows from, from military. And so what we see a lot of is uh, high zoom video gimbals operating in this, in this environment. And, and those typically aren't focused on the type of job a fire response crew needs to, needs to solve. So a, a video gimbal is this rolling ball. It zooms in really deep and it's focused on, on detail. They want to see sort of you know, what that person's facial features are, what car they're standing in front of, or what the license plate is. And that's super valuable and useful information if you know what you're looking for, or if you're looking at what you want. But if you want sort of broad situational awareness, it's not the right, it's not always the right answer. The reason that we're different is that we're getting over the area on demand. Um, so that's the difference between us and satellites with pretty high resolution compared to you know, what's on the market today with, um, you know, satellites are, our ground sample distance, our GSD is, is on the order of centimeters rather than meters, but we're still creating this really large view that allows the context to be understood by whoever is analyzing the data. It's the difference also, it sounds like a video gimbal needs to be operated by a person. Like I can imagine someone sitting there and controlling that and saying, I want to zoom in on this particular area and, and look at this tree, for example, or this feature in the landscape. Is the difference between like the video gimbal and the wide area mapping solution that, that you've developed also that automation piece where you just you know fly over it and then do the processing afterwards with no humans involved? Totally. Yeah, exactly. Our 
today we still operate with a person uh, behind the camera, but the simplicity of our software is such that typically they're operating multiple sensors. And so we do see customers with a video gimbal and with one of our systems in play because it's a lot more, it's a lot more automated. You fly over an area, you tell it what data product you want it to pr- produce, and, and it's you know, presented to you in, in near real time typically. So um, the speed to, to answer is a lot faster, we find, than a lot of those more manual operation products because it's doing a lot of the work for you. Uh, you're saying in near real time, that sort of suggests that the processing is happening on edge, so on your sensor. Yeah, exactly. So the system, the cameras themselves are, are equipped with the compute power they need to produce what we call a quick mosaic, which is sort of a proprietary rapid ortho mosaic. And those are producing within you know five to 10 minutes of completing your pass or completing your, your scan. And those are being delivered to the operator laptop on board, or if you've got it connected into the cloud, those are being pushed up to the cloud within yeah 10 minutes after completing your, your area. Are you pushing mosaics, like images, up to the cloud? Is that what the client wants? Or are you, you know, saying, okay, here is the fire line. If, if we stick with, with fire, for example, obviously in a marine situation, it would be different. But if it was a wildfire, here is the fire, fire line. These areas are burning. These areas are not burning. I, I guess my long-winded question is, what are you pushing to the cloud? Is it images or is it uh, your vector answers, objects, features? It totally depends. So what we've found is that Every agency does it differently. And because every agency does it differently, they all have a, you know, a color palette that they like or an output type that they like or a band that they like. And so we have had to sort of fit ourselves to everyone's needs. And in that sense, it's, it's, it's a pretty powerful system because we can do both and. And so what we see is we've got one agency over here looking at just midwave infrared ortho mosaics. And we've got this agency over there looking exclusively at the vector fire line produced by our system. And we're seeing, you know, a general trend towards the vector output rather than the image output, because an image output still relies on the manual process of a human interpreting what they're seeing. But it is a slow transition because it's something that's relatively new to the market. There's this established process and that burden of change takes a lot of time to educate the users, educate the consumers of that data. And so it's slow moving, but we are seeing the ball roll downhill towards a vector answer rather than the imagery, because that is still quite a manual interpretation process today. I, I realize this could go to a lot of different people, but generally, who are you creating the, these these products for? Who wants this data? Is it the people on the ground fighting the fire? Is it the firefighters themselves that are out there fighting the fire? Is it uh, people further back that are in a, like a, some sort of management chain? Is it other people in the sky? Is it, I don't know, it could be other sort of sensors that are flying around as well that want to mm-hmm. maybe have an idea of what areas they should focus on? Yes. Yes to all, I think, is the easiest answer, which is <laughs> the part that makes it a complex job is that we're trying to do a little bit of everything. We produce the imagery or the data or the answers that are needed based on the question that was asked. The distribution method is very is not up to us. We rely on our customers' distribution method. That said, I it is used by the folks on the ground. So I know that people are using the interpreted imagery or the the vector files or the the vector answers that we produce to know 
okay, I'm here. Where is the fire line from me? How close am I to this? And so in that scenario, it's super critical that it's time sensitive, which is why our systems are so effective. In the management or review, um, it's definitely an important snapshot in time. It's important to know where the fire was at this date and time, how well we're controlling it, how effectively are we using our resources. If we're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars here, is it working? Where are we holding them to? Has it crossed a line? So it's definitely used at all phases. And then because of the combination of the bands that we include within the sensors themselves, we see it used as well in sort of post-fire analysis. Maybe not the same imagery, you might need to get back over it again, but we, we've done some of that work where you get the system up in the air, get it over the area of interest and, you know, analyze, like, are we at risk for landslides because of soil and vegetation degradation? Or, you know, what is the burn ratio? Are we going to need to come back in for fire rehabilitation next spring so it doesn't burn again next summer, et cetera? So it definitely is used by a ton of different folks across the line. But what we're trying to make sure we're meeting the needs of is that critical, time-sensitive person who's standing, you know, in the line of danger going like, what do I need to know right now? Yeah. But I've heard people see the, say this a lot of times before. If you're delivering real-time imagery, you're delivering someone a real-time problem to solve. And I, I guess it's one thing that your sensor can produce this data, you know, in this near real-time you know, answers, let, let's call them answers or, or vector objects or imagery, because you're processing on edge. Are the consumers of it ready to receive real-time data from you? Like, are the systems in place, do they have the technology to make use of this stuff in real time? Some of them. When we look to some of the bigger fire markets like Cal Fire, like down in Australia, there's been significant investment and in funding in, in, in improving their response to fire. We are seeing the technological shift needed to be able to deal with real-time information. On a other countries or other agencies are moving slower because either they have more work to do to back train all of the folks depending on that data or their architecture isn't in place. But we are seeing a, a growth and a shift into the space where they are ready for that information. And there's a couple of different companies. Well, there's a huge industry that's growing. I'm seeing a ton of startups pop into that space of handling the, okay, you've got all of this data coming in from different sensors. How do we package it up and present it to someone who's, you know, marching through a forest or, you know, in a canyon trying to figure out where they are without a ton of, uh, of data? And so companies like Technosilva and Intera are doing a lot of that work where they're bringing all these sources in. They're just two examples of many doing this type of work in different ways, but we are seeing a, a shift. But absolutely, not everyone is ready for it. And so some of that real-time value is missed because we're using archaic systems where we're you know, looking at paper maps or sitting in a briefing room at 6 a.m. or we're only looking at the data once a day, even if we're providing it every 15 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it sounds crazy when you're a technologist sitting on this end saying, we can do this. You know, this is possible today. Yeah. Why aren't you rushing to consume this stuff? But, but I understand there's a lot of sort of cultural barriers. And also, people have been fighting fires for a long time, sticking with the fire example. It's going to be hard, I think, to, to change that culture because what they're doing is working. Maybe it's not up to the task of this increased risk that I feel like that we're seeing anyway. Like I have no data to back this up, but I feel like every summer more stuff is burning. 
Yeah, absolutely. And especially coming from, from Europe last summer. It, it just seemed to be insane. Yeah, there's, especially in the, well, on the West Coast of the U.S., there's sort of like a, and I'm speaking out of my lane a little, but there's, from what I know, there's sort of two factors at play causing this increased fire risk. The first one is for a long time, our fire management was just put it out and we forgot or we ignored that there was value in letting areas burn because it regenerates the the environment, it protects from bigger risk. And so there's been this fuel loading up over, over the last century that we're now dealing with. The other issue is climate change, obviously. Places that are burning now never would have burned in the past. And the risk is exacerbated by the fact that city centers and urban population, that wildland urban interface is growing. We're spending a lot more time in the middle of, or well, our communities are growing into places that need to burn, but we are just not equipped for it. But I would say I am seeing the industry calling for more support because we know we're not keeping up. The funding and the support and the resourcing is growing, but not at the rate that our risk is. And so more people are calling for answers and help and support on how do we do more? How are we more effective with what we have today? Because the the risk profile is getting worse and we're not funding it with enough people and planes and tanks and everything else they need at the rate that it's growing. And so we're trying to be more efficient than we have needed to be in the past. So of course, I only hear about the, the, the response to these kinds of emergencies when the emergency is taking place. You know, oh, look, there's planes flying around, there's the, you know, people taking images, the people collecting data, giving it on to people on the ground, and there's, you know, the firefighting is in progress. Do you see as an increased investment in terms of pre-fire season, people investing in being prepared for these events, using your equipment to, to map out areas, oh, this area should, should burn, actually, or this other area, we, we should prevent burning happening there? Or, or I, I guess my question is, do you see people investing the same amount in the emergency itself, like before the emergency, getting prepared for these things? No, no, which is the most disappointing answer because I think Every expert in this field agrees that we're not going to solve or, or address this issue by doing it the same way we have been. But like you said, there's this huge cultural shift, and it's also something that's really hard to push through in our, in our political environment is this massive funding shift into the pre-work rather than the reactive work. Because when it's burning, people know what's wrong. People are ready to respond because it's front and center. There's a lot of parallels, I think, to our response to climate change, where until we see it happening, it's really hard to dedicate energy and, and support to fixing it. So that said, the benefit of our sensors is that we can kind of, we can play the line on both fronts. We can be used in the beginning, we can be used during, we can be used at the end. And so I see a lot of interest that's garnered from the capacity of our sensor to be effective and useful at all phases. And so as those funding sources shift and change and grow and, and readjust to where we are today, our system is still relevant across the different life cycle of, of fire response, which is, which is not the same or not true of all systems, of, all, of everything available. Yeah. I, again, just from the outside looking in, it feels like we are much better at responding to these short-term emergencies as opposed to the, these longer-term, you know, multi-year, maybe multi-decade 
plans that that, we're, that we need to have in place to really sort of not maybe not prevent but help manage thing, th- things like wildfire. Yeah. I guess the question I, I want to ask is uh, is around mapping. Like, what what is the breakthrough here? Is it the, the wide area mapping that you've done? Is it the fact that it can be done like the the processing is happening on edge, so you can get these really quick answers? Is it the fact that you can click it onto, uh, I guess, sort of another plane easily? Is it the analysis? Is is it the ability to to get those answers out to people quicker? <laughs> you know, it feels like a, a lots of these pieces exist all over the place. What is the the breakthrough in, in in your system? What you're doing? What what are people saying? Oh, I'm glad you showed up because of what? Yeah, I think the reason we're interesting and important is because of the ease of use. So I said before, we're kind of a software company that didn't see what hardware we needed on the market. I still think we are, you know, very software focused, and we've made this work a lot easier than it is otherwise. Because we automate a lot of these tasks, you're not so dependent on a team of experts on call waiting and ready for the imagery coming in, which is sort of how it has been done in the past. And in some ways, still how our system is being used. What we're trying to push people to is leveraging the the ease of automation that we've baked into the system itself to get it one step f- further. But it's not like from a hardware perspective, we're not like, it's not like we're, you know, this major, unbelievable, brand new thing. It's really how we combine our hardware and our software together. And I think that, you know, wide area view is something that's been forgotten about because a lot of these emergency response focus areas, so, you know, maritime search and rescue, fire mapping, are just borrowing and and copy-pasting answers that the military has discovered, but those answers aren't necessarily the right ones for the work they're doing. In the military, you really need to know what you're looking at in high detail, but for this fast, broad search and rescue or search and, search and respond type of work, we're not so focused on the detail. We're a lot more focused on, on what's going on, what's the context, how do we process the context you know, you don't want to put out that little spot fire over there if there's another spot fire 30 miles away that is right on the edge of a, of a, of a community. And so knowing the whole scenario off the bat helps us like solve the problem a lot quicker or at least pinpoint resources to where they're most needed. Well, what's the biggest problem you're facing in your startup today? I think the biggest difficulty we have operationalizing our products with customers is we spend a lot of time training on on what we do or why we're different than what's on the market today because there's just this understanding of what imagery or what sensors flying overhead of emergency response scenarios means and we kind of operate on a different on a different path from those sensors and there is absolutely symbiosis between us and a video gimbal. Like in the maritime search and rescue field, what we're trying to do is we're trying to pick out points of interest on the ocean, and then you send that point to the video gimbal to tell you, okay, is it the boat I'm looking for or is it not? Is that a surfer in the water? Or is that a drowning person? Like, what are we trying to find here? But a lot of the industry really understands and knows what you know, these other sensors do. It's really clear how to use a video gimbal because 
they're effectively this like really cool pair of high-powered binoculars that you're, you know, zooming around and looking at where you want to look. And our system doesn't work that way intentionally, but that shift, that mindset shift is where we find the biggest hurdle in getting, you know, getting adoption both in use and also, you know, getting it written into requirements for government contracts. You kind of get have to get in at the front end and it, when it's not easily understood because it doesn't match the way we've been doing things, we find that it's, it's a slower adoption process than we'd like, even though we are starting to gain traction. When you said requirements there, I could see how that could be a barrier to entry for, you know, because if I don't have to, uh, I probably won't, right? Yeah. I, I'm not blaming anyone or critiquing anyone. I'm not in a position to do that. But if it was me and I was looking at, okay, I, I have this contract to fight this fire. I have a list of instructions to follow on how to fight a fire. I have a list of tools that are available to me that are approved. I would probably just stick to the list. Is that what you're seeing? Absolutely. And I think the harder part is funding is tight for everyone. We're trying to do the most with whatever funding is available. And I mean, that's true for agencies. That's true for the customers or the the companies delivering on agency requirements or contracts. And what that ends up being is, you know, everyone is operating under slim, slim margins in a pretty intense environment. And it makes it, you know, even that much more risky. And so adding sensors that are not on requirements or not under a requirement to a plane or an aircraft is not likely to to see the value because likely the agencies themselves aren't equipped to ingest that data or like cannot accept it, even if it's there because it's not in the contract. And they're already operating under some such slim margins that they can't even afford that investment. And it goes all the way up the chain. It's not something I can't really point to the agencies as the culpable parties here either, because we're all trying to do as much as we can with what's available and what's available doesn't match the problems we need to solve right now. Do you see the same kind of challenges? I guess we can call them for, for other areas of interest for, for you guys. So you talked about emergency. Maritime rescue, search and rescue, I believe. And you talked about tactical intelligence. Yeah. Do each of those sort of silos, do they come with their own set of challenges? Not just in, you know, what are we looking for in terms of objects, features, what, you know, the images we're trying to process, the data we're trying to collect, but also in terms of the deliverables and what is mandated in the specifications? Yeah, I think across the board, if you're not written into the requirements, you're not going to end up executing the contract or, or part of the execution of the contract. Um, I think the other complexity, it's a little bit different, I think, in the maritime search and rescue, at least in the U.S., because typically that's funded through more of the defense arm. And so there's a little bit more funding available for trying out new technology, especially as, you know, in the U.S., we're trying to be competitive with other big military spending budgets. And so there's a little bit more investment into new technology than is available on the civil side. But the problems are different. The problems are more the complexity with putting a new piece of hardware on this airframe that likely has is overloaded already with, you know, if it, in the search and rescue space, with people, with search and rescue equipment, with whatever sensor they already have. And so the steps that we've taken to try and mitigate that over the last three years is to make our software more portable. So now our software can control some of the leading video gimbals on the market. And so now you don't have to choose like, or have to figure out, you know, where's this, where's a free spot on this helicopter that's laden down already. 
Now we just get to make what's already on there more intelligent when it's helpful. And you're not locked into that either. You can use the gimbal as it was designed, where someone is sitting there controlling it themselves, or you can have our software stepping it around if you're trying to do two jobs and have our software just cueing you to things that are interesting so that you as a person sitting there can make decisions rather than spend your whole time like zooming around trying to find something. You can instead spend your time investigating the things that the system found for you. That makes a lot of sense. Do you see things like satellites being a, a solution here as well, or like for, for part of the problem? I'm thinking about satellites and drones. Those two platforms, there's a lot of excitement around them at the moment. Do you see people starting to talk about those two platforms in terms of imaging as potential solutions for, for biomapping, for emergency rescue, for obviously for tactical intelligence? But like, where do you see the overlap between you know, what you do and, and what these other platforms provide? Yeah, I think satellites are hugely beneficial. And, and a lot of the satellites on the market, to my knowledge, are a little bit more geared towards the scientific analysis and less to the timeliness, which is why I talk about sort of that near real time option. You don't have control over when a satellite is going to get over an area of interest. And so in areas like the US or Europe, where it's pretty densely overlapped with satellites on or in orbit, it's not as much of a concern. But for areas like Australia and Canada that are a little bit off the beaten path for some of those orbits, there's less control and less options for, for finding out where, where things are. They're absolutely useful for fire detection on, on a big scale or for big fire detection, and you can use it as a, as a jump-off point. But the resolution for the satellites that I've been exposed to, at least, is typically not quite sufficient for, like, did the fire jump this road? Yeah, the satellites are super effective on on a lot more of the scientific analysis and absolutely have us beaten in their in the sensor options they have available. A lot of them are providing a lot more like imagery bands than we have incorporated and there's value there, but they're typically not meeting the timeliness for that sort of rapid response. And so there's definitely a symbiosis there too. On the drone side, in the fire response, pilots don't like the idea of an unmanned vehicle circling and orbiting an area of interest because even if they a drone will go where you tell it and it's likely to stay where you tell it to be but if something goes wrong we're endangering people people's lives and so we see us we've seen a much slower adoption for unmanned vehicles into the fire space at least the bigger platforms the ones that carry a lot of cameras and a lot of get that wide area view the smaller sort of backpack drones are super effective at getting a little bit of a bird's eye view from where you're standing. And so we see that adoption growing steadily. But to be able to get the altitude you need to have broad situational awareness over the fire line and really understand the landscape that you're operating in, those drones haven't been heavily adopted because they're flying at the same altitude as a manned aircraft. And in that interface, that's, that's a super dangerous position to be in. And they're a lot harder to track for someone who, like for air traffic control. So over a fire, there's a temporary flight restriction that is set into place. And there's typically someone, uh, we call them air attack in the US. They orbit around that zone the whole time controlling the 
in and out of different aircraft in the scene. And so they're able to communicate back and forth with pilots flying into the airspace and directing them on where to go. But that's a lot harder to do if you've got unmanned vehicles circling and bringing in all that input into a really complex operating environment is really, really scary. So that's not been super effective, or at least adopted. Thanks. I appreciate the clarification there. Air attack, are they, this is going to sound very naive, but are they just sitting there, you know, navigate or, or telling or being traf- air traffic control for other pilots coming in and out? Or is that plane typically equipped with, with sensors? I'm going to speak more from the US perspective because I'm not as familiar with that job looks quite different in different countries. But in the US, up until recently, largely those aircraft have been just humans. You've typically got uh, a pilot to the left, your air air attack officer to the right. They're just directing, they're not just, they are directing traffic flow, but they're also making sure that for for aircraft doing water drops or, or picking up water from lakes on the terrain, they're looking for hazards. So they're calling out you know, there's a power line there, or there's boats in the water, don't land there. Or it seems like it should be an easy job if you think about it without the context. But watching those people operate, it is, they're working a million miles a minute to try and keep up with what's going on and really keep everyone safe. They're also calling out fire spots, like new hotspots that have popped up outside the fire line. So anything they're seeing, they've got to have their head in a swivel. They're looking for anything that's around them that might need to be dealt with, that might run away from from the response crews. And that's only the part of the job that I understand. I definitely don't speak with a ton of expertise on what everything they do. But in the last year and a half, we've seen a new contract released at the uh, federal level from the Forest Service, and they are working to put sensors on those aircraft because those guys are over the fire line or over the area of interest and they're orbiting. And so they'll revisit, you know, a point of interest every 15 minutes or every 20 minutes. And so they are perfectly poised to give real-time updated information. And if we can make a sen- put a sensor on there and automate that flow, we'll be poised really well to have a really deep understanding of where it is and how it's moving and how it's moving through the landscape. And, you know, and on the predictive fire modeling side, be better suited to, okay, well, we should probably set a line here rather than there because it's running in this direction. The wind is moving this way, et cetera. So we're seeing that shift. And right now we're seeing that, that shift with, you know, a manned sensor on board, but that's only going to be some of the work. Uh, we're hoping to be able to push our sensor into a more automated platform so we can keep people out of aircraft because it's a super dangerous place to be and still get the data without overburdening that person in the in the right seat who's got a lot on their mind. Yeah, and I, I just want to be clear, I didn't mean to trivialize the, the work. No, 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 I at, totally understand. <laughs> uh, but it, it just seems like that would be, I also don't want to say easy win, but that would be a win for everyone. If, a sense, if that plane had a sensor on it, like you're saying, circling the fire the entire time, the repeat time, if the processing is happening on edge, and if you could deliver that down to people on a regular basis, that seems like it'd be a, a huge benefit for, for a lot of people. And I'm also thinking about the if the collection time is really high, I'm sure that data would be helpful in terms of modeling. Yeah. You know, once you've been to 5, 10, 15 fires, that data set would be pretty incredible. At, at least I, I imagine it would be. Yeah, absolutely. I think 
the reason it's taken so long, it's taken us so long to put a sensor on those planes is because this is a really dangerous operating environment. And when you add more people into an aircraft, you are increasing the risk profile of, of what happens if something goes down. And the biggest concern is that if we overcomplicate that aircraft and that air attack officer is distracted doing something else or thinking about something that's not critical, you know, we've lost. That's not what's supposed to happen. And so only in the last couple of years have the market of sensors gotten smart enough to allow us to explain like, okay, we have a path to putting an operator in, having that system op operate over that environment and then pulling that sensor operator out or down or off the aircraft. Maybe they're sitting in a, in a, you know, in a safe room, like typing away and controlling the sensor from the ground. But we want to make sure we're not, first of all, distracting the person who's dealing with air traffic control over this really intense environment and also trying to keep that risk profile of that aircraft as low as possible. And so I think that's still been a big hurdle is how do we not distract the guy who, or, the, or the gal who matters? And how do we not increase the risk profile of that aircraft in this dangerous environment? You've, you've got this uh, real empathy for, for the people that you're seeking to serve. So I, I've met a, a bunch of people in the tech industry, and you can hear this impatience in them. Like, we've got this amazing tech. We've done this thing. We've solved the problem. Like, let us go. Let us try this thing. Let's make things better. They're, they're, I, I guess the only word I have to describe this is it feels like that they have an impatience and a frustration. Why? Are you slowing me down? I have the answer. But that's not the feeling I get from you at all. You have, you have some tech that I'm sure you're very excited about, but it feels like you understand that, oh, well, it only, it only works if it works for them. How do we make it work for them? Uh, you know, how do we consider, how do we build up this empathy for the job that they're doing? How do we not show up and say, everything you're doing is wrong. Here's the new way of doing it. H how long has it taken you to, to do that? I, I, I feel like I, you know, if you asked me last week or, or three months ago, I, I flip-flop between both, both standpoints, I think. I do think we need to move faster this direction because we can't just keep, you know, we still fight fire in like the most simple way possible. We like drop water, we drop retardant, we just hope it goes out. And we need to get better than that. But I think the the hard part is it's like such an intense operating environment. You know, we we see people, it's like a really scary place to be in a lot of ways and I can understand why it takes so long to move things into this into this space because people's lives are at stake. And so if you're trusting a sensor and it's wrong or if you, you know, if you don't understand how to interpret what you're seeing because it didn't get trained on it, well, like that's just as bad as not having anything at all, if not worse, because now you're proceeding as if you have the information and you don't, either because you didn't understand it or because it was wrong or because you didn't understand the context in which you're seeing it. And I think, you know, the empathy for like for how intense that environment is, everything moves really fast, both in the maritime search and rescue. It's like that's a numbers game. The faster you find someone, the safer they are and the longer it takes the less likely it is that you'll, you'll be successful. I think the same thing applies to fire response. Thing, the, the environment changes really fast. And I think it makes sense that there's kind of a slow roll and a slow adoption because it's an intense operating environment. And if you're not aware of your surroundings because you're trying to figure out what you're seeing, you know, you, you are at major risk. And, and I think, I think that's really, I mean, it's, 
it's easy to forget about, but it's really hard to like to demand that much more other than, you know, keep doing as best we can to to make the move the needle farther. And any any step forward is a step forward, but we just got to do it with the safety considerations for sure. So when when you took over this role, when you started as mission success manager, which is an awesome title, by the way, it could be, you you could work at NASA with a title like that. (laughs) I know. Have you been surprised by by anything? Like in the last uh, maybe year that you've been working this role, year and a half that you've been working this role, have you been surprised by uh, by anything? Oh, all the time. I think as much as I can have empathy for, you know, how long it might take to get a new technology into the market, I'm always surprised by how little people have, have been working with, have been able to work with for so long. And even as we start adopting these technologies, I mean, we're starting to get a lot of traction. We see, I mean, our sensors are, are producing a significant portion of all of the fire data for the continental U.S. at the federal level today. Even then, the like, it's there, but we talk to people who are, you know, frontline operating on the ground. They go, oh my God, I've never seen this before. And it's just so surprising that we're making headway and yet it's taking so long to get there. I think it's it's you know a really interesting challenge because because we don't work very cohesively and I think that's the issue here especially and I'm actually no this is not a US issue this is I think a global issue the US forest service works differently from cal fire which works differently from the rural fire service down in australia which works differently from victoria department of emergency services in australia it's really hard to share stories. And so one person will learn a lesson and then the next person will learn a lesson, but they'll learn the same lesson and we don't do a very good job. And I think it's surprising to me how bad we are at sharing, at sharing that. And it's because like the architecture needed to support communal response to any major disaster just doesn't exist yet. And I think we're starting, I mean, everyone talks about it, and hopefully we start to solve that problem. But I think that's going to be one of the hardest problems to solve. I sometimes ask people, um, what's the hard thing here? Is it the tech or is it the, the technological problem you're trying to so- solve? Or is it the, the, the cultural shift you're trying to make happen? And, and people sort of generally fall you know, on both sides of the line, 50-50 the split. But when I think about a lot of the problems, I think about it's, it's got to be the adoption. You know, there's got to yeah. be so much amazing technology out there in the world but it's getting people to care enough about it to use it. And I've seen a couple of brilliant examples where people have literally needed to show up with something that was 10, 20, 30 times better than the existing one just to get a look in the door, you know, just to get people to start moving away from the thing that they're used to doing. I understand it, but it always surprises me how, how difficult that sort of cultural shift is or can be. Yeah, I, that's absolutely correct. We need to be, yeah, 60 times better than than the existing solution or 30 times better because right now the existing solution is typically like a manual, a personal process. And it's always under this high pressure situation of we got to find this person stranded at sea or we got to make sure there's no boats coming towards us that aren't meant to be because, you know, you don't want a a ship to sink or we're trying to deal with a wildfire bearing down on us. And you know, in these high pressure situations, everyone reverts to their like default answer. And that default answer has been established and trained on over centuries in a lot of these scenarios. I mean, even, you know, maritime search and rescue, a lot of the work is still taking their high zoom video gimbal 
and panning it across the ocean manually looking for anything. And it's like a human looking at the video feed coming in going, I don't see anything on the surface, which is not very different than how we would search 100 years ago. You just probably wouldn't do it in a helicopter. But because it's so life or death in a lot of these scenarios, because it's so important that we get it right, to trust that a technology, a new technology on the market is going to at least help you is a big ask. It's a big burden of trust because you have established a way of working. You've had success. You sort of know how it's going to work. You know, if I do it this way, I'll find, I'll get there eventually, or, or this is how it'll work, or this is how I was trained 20, 30 years ago. You have to really trust that a new sensor is going to help you. And if you can't prove it fast, it really slows down the adoption. Well, I think that's a, that's a brilliant insight, and, and I, I really appreciate you sharing that with us. I think also this is a great place to round off the conversation. And I hope when people hear the last thing you said there, I hope they think of not just technology, but I hope they think of you know, a way of their way of working. When they show up with a new idea, I hope they, they take some of your insight there and apply it to whatever they're doing. And maybe that insight is just, man, this is going to be difficult. I need to keep going, or I need to have a lot of empathy for the people I'm trying to serve. And you know, make it very, very easy for them. But I, I think that was brilliant. I really appreciate it. Where can we go if we want to learn more about what you're doing or, or maybe reach out to you personally? Is there somewhere we can send listeners if they want to continue this conversation? Yeah, absolutely. I'm on LinkedIn personally, as is Overwatch Imaging. But otherwise, we're at overwatchimaging.com, O-V-E-R-W-A-T-C-H-I-M-A-G-I-N-G.com. And it's got links to, to everything. Perfect. Thanks so much for your time, Alison. It's been, uh, it's been great talking with you. Yeah, thanks, Daniel. This is really fun. So I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Alison, Mission Success Manager at a startup called Overwatch Imaging. I'll put links to her personal profile on LinkedIn as well as to Overwatch Imaging's website in the show notes today. And I'll also link up other relevant episodes. So we've published over 200 episodes now and I am painfully aware that it can be difficult to to find what you're looking for in that big pile so in the show notes today if you look closely you'll see you'll see links to other relevant episodes so please take the time to check that out okay that's it for me that's it for this week i'll see you again next week i hope that you'll take the time to join me then